Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. So you see, Todd, the nimble improviser must navigate the most sensitive of areas. And I'm not just talking about the butt. The great has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm David Bazaar from Cornell University. Tamler, since I think Kennedy, but for sure since Reagan, there's been a tradition of officially pardoning the White House turkey. I'm really, really curious if we had that tradition where you had to pardon somebody. Yeah. Who, who would you pardon and why? <laughs> oh, good question. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Clearly, you're not pardoning the turkeys. <laughs> Happy things. I, par- I pardoned every turkey except <laughs> the Whole Foods humanely raised turkey that we ate at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I, I take it I'm supposed to pardon a philosopher. I'm definitely not yeah, pardoning you can, Kant. You can pardon. He wouldn't want you, me to pardon can, him because, like the you know the blood guilt or the you know the, the universe would be out of balance you can you can part you doesn't have to be a philosopher you can pardon hitler if you want <laughs> that's who you would pardon uh, i wish i had time to think about this don't worry uh, we'll edit it to make it sound like it was off the top of your head yeah okay good <laughs> uh, i did i picked this question on purpose because i wanted to find the forgiveness in your heart you know yeah, that's too serious an answer. But I just became involved with this. Uh, this will be a good way to promote it anyway. With this, it's called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. And it's this organization that works and helps prisoners uh, make license plates and sell them. For- <laughs> no, they, they, they give it's, it's, it's really great. They, they take this whole course and learn about really how to be on the job market once they get out of prison. And the thing it all leads up to is they pitch their own ideas for businesses with very limited, you know, access to the web and access to research materials. They all come up with ideas. And I, and I went to one of these and, and it's a really fun meeting. It's a really just, there's so much energy and enthusiasm. And it was also the first time I'd ever been in a prison. And there, there are times where they allow you to sort of mingle with the prisoners in between panel sessions where you give feedback on their proposals. And there was one guy who was so interested in philosophy. You know, he knew that I was a philosopher and he'd been just doing all his own reading. Like he was reading right at that moment. He was reading the myth of Sisyphus. Oh, wow. And he loved it. 
And he, you know, this was, he's like, I got to do, I got to take advantage of all the time I have here to read up on all these things. And I don't know what he did. They said that all those people who were there could be there for anything except sexual assault or rape. But I'm going to just take a chance (laughs) and pardon him because I really liked him. And we had a really nice talk and I, and I trust him, you know, uh, so I, I actually will chime in and say, you know, we have a Cornell Prison Education Program. I've talked about it here before, too. I think that donating books like this often, if you're a professor or a grad student and you have extra textbooks lying around, find yeah. find a way to just give, you know, give them away to, to prisons. They could really they could really use use it. That's a great idea. And in fact, that's what I'm going to do uh, when I next go there is is bring just a bunch of books yeah. for their library. And I had a buddy who was in prison and he wanted me to send him uh, the Kama Sutra because one of his friends wanted to get a tattoo of one of the poses and uh, it, the prison rejected it. Like they rejected it. They just this was L.A. County. They did. They said, no, no pornographic material. Like, are you fucking kidding me? This literature. <laughs> you know, the less mature version of us would have maybe made a joke about Kama Sutra prison. <laughs> we, the, we got, okay, th- this might segue because, um, first of all, this is this week's episode is with Val Tiberius. We recorded it, like, what, a month ago? Um, I don't we, even know. And, and it's been being... through the freaking rigor with all <laughs> these technical bullshit. Been it's, miserable. It, the The... Episode itself is great. It's great. And I really hope you enjoy it. One of my favorite. One of my favorite. Um, uh, but uh, we wanted to take a little bit of time since since it's <laughs> this is our second attempt. It was closer to Thanksgiving when we when we had this idea. But just to say really quickly a few things that we're actually thankful for because um, because we can be sincere. We can be, we sp- and we spend a lot of time bitching. We spend a lot of time bitching. So so um, I I I. I know that you probably have like a top 6.3 uh things you're thankful for so i have i have three things that's it okay go for it i'll I'll be quick too first one i'm grateful for is fargo season two holy fucking shit good so fucking good it's great those it it the, the, I really just believe that those guys in that family are those guys i don't like i can't imagine them not like being in other roles I can't. Uh, Bokeem Woodbine is just like the fucking charmingest motherfucking criminal in the like the man. history of TV. <laughs> Ten times more charming than that Arnold. <laughs> um, and that pig from Green Egg. That Arnold from Green Egg. <laughs> uh, the, yeah. Um, and I don't want to talk about it too much. We probably talk about TV too much. <laughs> and it's really, it's not, like, I don't know if we would ever do necessarily a, a, an episode on it. It's not like there are a lot of philosophical issues. It's just amazing TV. Yeah. It's just really well done, well acted, well written, well performed. So I'm grateful for that. Really, really um, well done. Second thing I'm grateful for is my subfields the people in my subfields so I, I i count my subfields as moral psychology um and those are the people that go to you know like the spp society for psychology and philosophy conference and sspp and just all the all those people <laughs> they're just good people they're just they're fun they're supportive they've they're supportive of junior people they were supportive of me when i was 
even more of a nobody than I am right now. And even when you critique them, they take it in with good humor and and I, it's, you know, you can't take that for granted. The same thing with the, you know, the free will people, the free will moral responsibility people, many of whom are not empirically oriented and many of whom do the, the type of philosophy that I'm actively opposed to, but I'm not actively opposed to hanging out with them. There was just a conference in New Orleans um, just a couple weekends ago, and it was so much fun. And those people are so good. And 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 again, I, I think this is rare in academia. Just how good the senior people are to the junior people. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just it look, is. I mean, uh, I could throw I could throw out names, even though I'm in psych, in social psychology, and, and our conferences are much bigger. But those conferences, the ones that you referred to, in that small community of people who sort of empirically minded philosophers and philo- philosophical philosophically minded psychologists it's just a a great group um and you know and they've created a community of younger people who are just like that you know and i know just from talking to colleagues that it's not that way in 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 a a lot lot of areas yeah so that's my that's my that's my other one and then i have one more but i'll save that till the end till you go in the spirit of this yeah i am constantly amazed at our listeners and and mm. it's it's this so last up ep- the last episode that we did on on the student protests i would say like you know both of us are really comfortable talking about all kinds of crazy shit um i was i was nervous i i really was nervous because i knew that there were people who felt strongly about this and even but not just for that episode but for for i i mean i'm hard pressed to think of a cruel, mean, ad hominem uh, attack on us by by listeners, maybe one or two that were just kind of funny. But even when they disagree and they disagree strongly, so strongly, in fact, that they want to yell at us. Yeah, or write long emails telling us where we're misguided. It's just, it's respect. They've been respectful and kind and said nice things. Uh, to us about what we're doing and you know it's i'm tempted to take some credit for creating creating sort of an atmosphere of discussion where we we express that we're comfortable with this but it really is that i mean it's just like well you think that's all you like it's mostly me i'm not (laughs) i'm the classy one remember um but but I I'm just constantly constantly amazed. And in fact, next episode we're going to devote a little bit of time to feedback that we got from the last episode. Um, but it's exactly the sort of discussion that could actually change our minds, or at least open us up to ways in which we hadn't thought about things. Because you, when you take a look at the internet and and how people act in general when they leave comments and they tweet, and you know YouTube comments are notorious for that. Um, we we just have like a, a a solid group of the the people who are willing to email us seem to be people who are willing not just to agree and, and you know suck our dicks about something but actually disagree and tell us we're stupid but in a way that we would that is is actually really respectful. Yeah. No, and I agree. And that and the contrast between that and a lot of what you see on Twitter or on comment yeah. feeds or you know is 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 really stark and and while i think you can take we and and probably we both can take some credit for that it's also just 
that we have we got lucky and we got a, we have a great group of listeners and we will devote a, that was my uh, last one too um exactly that but just the mm-hmm. listeners and the way in which they interact with us and you know they say nice things about us but they're also not shy about disagreeing and i've had a lot of the most interesting exchanges you know that I have in and some hilarious in insults, <laughs> some and hilarious, hilarious insults. insults. <laughs> um, by the way, who, who is who sent? Who's the student who sent us that fan art? Oh yeah, Pavel. Yes, oh, shout out God. to Pavel for that. I an really, awesome piece of fan I will art pay, that we will, I will post. Pay him for, I will pay him for either the original or a, or a scanned copy. Tell tell him this is the most. It's. We're, he drew us hilariously ugly, but in a way that captures something just really captures captur- the ugliness of not just our physical appearance, but our spirit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> with, with some hilarious quotes that that uh, I'll leave for the we'll put it we'll put it on the web page. Yeah. I'm tempted to make it the front page of our website, uh, verybadwizards.com, for at least a, a bit. Um, okay, well, uh, my thing- master's student, if you're a professor uh, at a at a top PhD program, the sky's for real. Yeah. So, and I will say this, like, and this is the last the last sort of um, kissing gotcha. to our listeners, yeah. but. Um, but the fact that we have people sort of write us in from a really, really, I, I don't know what to call it, conservative or, uh, you know, traditionally right wing kind of view and the ones who are completely on the left with like the most liberal, like we get both of those. Both, yeah. Like both of like both. Often of on people. the same episode. Like last <laughs> time. Yeah. No. <laughs> and it's like, I'm just glad. Like, I think so, so much of, of modern media is just catering to, to people who feel good for getting, you know, hearing the things that they agree with. Yeah. Um, getting the answer right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, liberals don't listen to Rush Limbaugh unless you're hate listening. Um <laughs> I have a friend here that does that. I don't understand that. He they, they, he just hate listens like a couple hours a day. I just, when you send me your audio track, I just listen to yours without mine. And I just hate, hate listening. You hate listening to it. <laughs> um, finally, All right. Yeah, there's one really quick one. Ed Brubaker, the comic book artist. Um, I'm really grateful for him for allowing me to procrastinate and sleep through my insomnia. If you like noir... And you haven't read comics? Read some of Ed Brubaker's. It is like watching film noir, but reading it in comic book form. Um, criminal. Uh, it's it's just good. I've my iPad has been filled with his work. Now you know what would make us even more grateful than <laughs> we already are is if listeners continue to interact with us at Very Bad Wizards at Peas at Tamler uh, on Twitter. Our, uh, like us on Facebook, Very Bad Wizards, verybadwizards at gmail.com for emails. And you can support us. And we're going to try to make the support features a little more prominent. R- right now, they're at, uh, and, and they will remain, all, uh, even if we put them elsewhere, the verybadwizards.com slash support. Uh, you can either support us by directly through paypal or you can click on the amazon link and i probably can imagine around this time of year you're going to be doing some amazon shopping so it would be awesome if you would click on that link first before you do your shopping and we will get a small cut 
of of that. And we really appreciate all the people who have done this. Yeah, all the people far. at Pay- PayPal. I really, I really want to find a way to just to just give back. I mean, we're giving back lots of time and energy. Um, poor Tamler, you spent like ten hours probably just on this episode editing. But um, but we we really are are grateful. So so hopefully you feel that gratitude. Um, rate us on iTunes. Yes, rate us on iTunes. We love those. It's not like sometimes I'll wait like a week and then, and then go, go and look. there'll be a couple new ones and it'll be fun. I'm sensitive too. I'm always scared that there's going to be something bad. Like I actually am like uh, this. You could take a couple I, I can, I can. Point. But it's like, you know, do you ever like uh, when you get comments back from reviewers? I know you write books and not journal articles, but like when you get an editorial decision, um, sometimes I just can't even. Like I just kind of glance at to see what the decision was, and I can't I can't read because like I'm yeah. I'm like then I have to go back after. I'm like about to get that for an NEH. <laughs> I'm gonna have to like get up, stand up from the desk, you know, and like, <laughs> all right, all right, I'll do it. Pour myself a drink. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we just submitted a letter of intent to a Templeton grant too, so we'll see. Oh, you're gonna we'll see. We'll see if Jesus favors us. <laughs> all right, you're selling out to God exactly. Does that mean you have to vote for Ben Carson? Uh, well, I was going to anyway because I'm not racist. Um, but, right. <clears throat> and I have found out genealogically through National Geographic's uh, DNA analysis that I have 4% of DNA associated with the Jewish diaspora, which means that I can officially not uh, no longer ever be accused of anti-Semitism. Just a self-hatred. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm a, self-hatred of 4%. I, I, what, what 4% Well, I was looking into a procedure of, that could remove 4% of DNA just out of curiosity. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we'll be right back with Valerie Tiberius. Oh, this segment that's coming up right now leads off kind of Mark Maron style. It's in the middle of her telling a story about her dog. How's that, that for That's good. And the audio will be worse than this. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but but stick with it because it's I think it's a real it's it's one of our best discussions with a guest. Um, Agreed. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Now I'm off to watch Fargo. dog story has to do with well-being it's just very much on my mind our dog olive who's a kind of 30 pound brindle hound very dainty afraid of everything she's been killing a lot of squirrels lately and the, the other day she killed one and walker my husband found her like gnawing on half a squirrel and today she killed one 
we see her out there. She's, you know, it's disgusting to watch them eating a squirrel. And then, but that wasn't the end of it. And she came inside and puked it up on her dog Uh, bed. Kind of like fresh, masticated, vomitous squirrel meat. It was so disgusting. We were walking around. You know that feeling you get when you feel like you're going to vomit yourself? Yeah. Oh, it was really, really foul. So can I, I, I've never heard of a dog actually getting a squirrel. Do you have, what? Is, really? do your dog have superpowers or are the squirrels just fat and lazy? In, in <laughs> I don't think they are. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've. Uh, we, I, I think almost all my dogs have killed squirrels, except the little sixteen-pound beagle. She can't catch them. T- Tamler's dog yeah. just goes for babies maybe, and stuff. Maybe Tamler's dog is a loser. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Special. these dogs don't. My my dog Tess though would chase after squirrels, but she never got them. My squirrels are fast; they're quick. You know, there's dogs though that are like like Rhodesian Ridgebacks that like were bred to like hunt lions. So there's just yeah right, but that's a lion. <laughs> that's different. It's not a squirrel. Like but those they, are two different things. Also, the Ridgebacks don't catch the lions. <laughs> they just like scare them. I bet that um, dentist that killed the African lion couldn't get a squirrel. Yeah. I bet you're right. He lives in Minnesota, you know. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's he's a state he's of infant. Oh yeah, from my town. Yep, he's from it's your a town. Place of killing here. Was he your dentist? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, squirrels are very dumb. They seem to have this random, you know, they have an instinct to do random shit. They, they'll they run this way or run that way or they'll run halfway and then turn around and do this kind of thing. And that it's sometimes that is a losing strategy. Them. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. We're here with one of my favorite philosophers working today, Valerie Tiberius. Valerie is professor and chair at the University of Minnesota, a system that I came out of. Of course, I came out of the Morris campus, which is three hours west of Minneapolis, where Valerie is. Um, She's also part of that shady cabal, the moral psychology working group. Research group. Oh, is it? What is it? Yeah. It's okay. We, We try not to tell people about it. So. Okay. Are you still in it? No, yeah. no, I got I got booted. Yeah. <laughs> Did you vote him out? You'd, al- you'd always be welcome back. <laughs> I don't think Walter would like me. Maybe John Doris might kick me out, but Walter, Walter would fight for me. <laughs> Valerie's also the author of two books. Most recently, the uh, 2015, right? It just came out: Moral Psychology: A Contemporary Introduction. And the reflective life, living wisely within our limits. With. Uh, with our limits. Impor- uh. Important difference. Yeah. Okay. With our limits. Got it. Either way, I think it, I can't think of a title that probably describes me any worse than that. Li- <laughs> like any part of it. Living wisely, <laughs> living with limits, living within limits, um, living reflectively. You have to have like <laughs> basic working memory capacity to, to reflect on anything. <laughs> <laughs> the alcohol is uh, and that book is on a topic that we'll be focusing on today mostly well-being the good life the socrates question how should i live arguably the most important question there is valerie welcome to the podcast thanks hi thanks for inviting me uh can i sure. ask the the 
the most important question. What's it like to live your life with a last name that is the answer to the trivia question of what was Captain Kirk's middle name? <laughs> it's it's pretty awesome, I have to say. I get I I was nominated on Facebook as philosopher with the coolest name, um, but un- unfortunately, somebody thought of Lucius Outlaw, and he. Oh, that's that, a I mean, yeah. You gotta admit that's better. Um, but I, it's a real, it's a conversation starter. People are always asking me about it, and and people are always saying. Did you know that Tiberius is James T. Kirk's yeah, middle like name? Like you wouldn't like, know that. I'm... Really? Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. No, no but really? if your name was Tiberius, you would. I promise yeah. you would. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I think I first found it out from a video clerk, a blockbuster clerk in the 80s, <laughs> yeah. who was quite pleased to tell me. Uh, Tam- yeah. Tamler just has to live with the question of, are you related to Suzanne Summers from the Threes Company? Um, yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> Less lately, I think she's sort of receded from the, the public. The thigh master is yeah. no longer like the number one fitness device. Um, but did you? Did people really ask you that? Oh, all the time. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, we well, you know Three's Company. Yeah, um, it was big back in the big. day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, TV has gotten so much better. Like, I bet if you went back and watched Three's Company right now, yeah, it was a great show, man. It was. Just... I don't think so. I think it was. That's my guess. Before we get to the main topic, I want to gush a bit about this term that you introduced me to in the interview for my book, The Very Bad Wizard book. It's We were talking about why people or philosophers have stopped working on the question, like, how should I live? You know, that big question that Aristotle was working on, Socrates, Plato in his own weird way. I mean, you gave an answer, I think, you know, uh, that it had to do with the fact that it's it's a hard question that people can really only write books about rather than articles. And then you said that that philosophy had been bogged down for a lot of the last century anyway in what might be called epicyclic engineering. Epicyclic engineering, or I guess epicyclic is a fine pronunciation. But it's, I wish it were my phrase, but it came from a a, a, um, philosophy of science guy, Marius Stan. He does a history of philosophy of science. So it's his phrase, but I like it a lot. Um, It's so perfect. It really is. So what does it mean? It's the kind of philosophy that i you know well okay you said no one listens to this podcast so maybe i won't worry so much about yeah. that there's a certain kind of philosophy that that um that i think is kind of rewarded a lot in the contemporary scene um where it looks like people have lost sight of the bigger questions so you have a lot of objections to you know, you have a theory with, right. with, let's say you have a theory with six different points and you have an objection to point one and then a reply to objection one of point one and then a reply to that and a reply to that. And you just keep getting you're just going in circles around and around and around about this tiny little um, criticism of a subsection of a theory. And, you you know, you sort of forget about like why did we have why were we working on this theory in the first place why were why are we doing this what does it why connect it to so Tam- yeah. tamler and i and i don't remember with who we've talked about this and my theory was that this is an attempt at imitating the strategy that science has science to acquire truth has to proceed by a division an incre- increasingly specialized division of labor 
where it makes sense that people there were people who used to study um like you know life and then there had to be people who studied right. mammals and now there are people who study the diurnal cycles of hamsters and that that's you know it's problematic in that to integrate it back is is a tough thing to do but it gives us knowledge it gives us truth and but philosophy just doesn't seem it seems as if it's like a it's a funnel that's leading to nowhere you know like by the time you get (laughs) down to the funnel you're like summer's third objection to tiberius's fourth point on her treaties on, on variation pop- of a frankfurt case variation <laughs> right. of a case. if you step back and you say what is this actually contributing to our understanding of moral responsibility or our understanding of knowledge or our, it's 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 just not something that is even tried because if it were i i think it would be very tough yeah to, I mean, I, so another, I guess it's also true that a lot of philosophers like, um, I mean, it's fun to engage in that kind of thinking. It's like there are these puzzles. It's fun to think of counterexamples. It's fun to, um, to sort of push a a point to the limit and we're really fucking good at it that's like that's how we got into this that's what we were rewarded for as undergraduates and why we went to grad school because we had these skills Mm -hmm. so we're just like you know virtuosos playing these little um riffs on the piano that uh no that nobody actually likes to listen to (laughs) i think it's something like that so so i I guess there has to, to me it seems like there has to be a balance and we're just maybe we have been, I think it's actually getting better now, but I think we have been a bit out of balance um, and too much of the big picture has been lost sight of. But I don't think, I, I wouldn't want it to be the case that, you know, you have philosophers like waxing poetic about the big questions without any kind of precision or any attention right. to what a good argument is. That wouldn't be good right, either. Right. Or that, you know, I mean, I think there's room for like some philosophers who are good at that to do that. But then there needs to be the other more rigorous style of philosophy. It's just that that side spun out of control and just became 95% of the discipline. So there was a Bernard Williams, but then everybody else was the anti-Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and what what you were saying when we talked before, Tamler, was had to do with like the reward structure. You know, it's yeah. it, people, people who, who make an effort to be – more Williamsy are not really rewarded. Um, right. Okay. Like you'll maybe, never get a job that Williams- way. Yeah, exactly. And that's partly because you'll never get a job if you don't have a bunch of publications and it's really hard to get, a, to get things published where you're, you know, tackling these huge questions without uh, doing the, the little engineering. It's funny bits. because sometimes I look at like old, the, you know, the old titles of, of books and so to write, can you imagine the hubris that we would accuse someone of if they wrote a book called A Treatise on Human Nature? You know, okay. it would be just like, <laughs> oh, really? Are you fucking trying to, to explain hu- human nature? That's like, that's what you're. I So the book that I'm uh, working on now, which doesn't really have a title, but it's it's about well-being and it's about friendship. And there's a large segment in it that's um, and the basic idea is that, you know, we all value friendship. We want to be good friends. Um, if you want 
to be helpful to your friends if you're, you know, when your friends are in trouble or they need, um, well, even support. I hadn't thought about that word, but uh, I think you need to pay attention to your friends' values and to their points of view. And that means that you need to try to understand what their point of view is. And we suck at that because we tend to be um, pretty, you know, we have strong egocentric bias. And so what you need to cultivate is a particular kind of humility in your friendships of, of not assuming that you know what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes. And as I'm writing this, um, I, have all, I have a lot of examples from various places. And I keep thinking to myself, God, is this really philosophy? I'm not, you know, which is so sad in a way that it's, yeah. it's a big, important question. And, and of course, what I mean by is this really philosophy is, is not it is philosophy, but what but what the question means is, will it be accepted as philosophy by right. the world? Um, and that kind of makes me right. mad. Yeah, no, that's right, and and you and it's a right, it's a legitimate worry. And I and I su- yeah, I've I've had that question when I've given talks. I remember somebody asking me at the end, um, you know, can why my question is why is this philosophy? And I my answer was well. Hume wrote about it. Um, so I thought that was fair. Do you, I know we should talk about that. About, I know you want to talk about the the real topic, but I'm just, do you have a sense of why philosophers are so concerned to police the boundaries of our discipline? Do you have a view about that? No, I don't. And I don't understand it. I'm so vehemently opposed to it, but maybe Dave does because he likes to do that. Like he was saying on the last episode that certain kind of experimental philosophy is actually just psychology. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, me, so like, if we accept that there are boundaries, discipline, disciplinary boundaries, then, you know, we have to accept that to begin with. But there's there's certainly combining. And I think Val's work. Do, do you care? Do you care if it's Val or Valerie? I yeah, prefer yeah, yeah. Valerie from Strangers. No, but no, you, I, you know. Put, so, yeah. Tamler is the only person in the world who calls me Dave, <laughs> except for people who listen to the podcast. So I always know if somebody somebody <laughs> meets me and calls me Dave, I know that they are listeners of the podcast. Do you prefer? I, you David know, I have. I cannot live a life where I could have any strong preference because then I would just be miserable. Like when people didn't. So I don't care, but I call right. myself David. I always introduce myself as Valerie, and it freaks me out when people call you who don't Val, know yeah, me yeah. call me Val. But but in fact, most of my friends yeah, call me yeah. Val. So none of my friends called me Tam, but most of Jen's friends called me Tam, my wife, because that's what she calls me, and just talk. Yeah. and yeah. a lot of people call me Peaser. Yeah. So like this very you know like a name I'm not comfortable with is the name that a whole yeah group I like to call you Tam Tam, but usually behind your back. Tam, Tam. Oh, Tam. better than Jen's <laughs> sisters, Tammy the tampon. Uh, you can have <laughs> a mascot so and everything. Yeah. So, so do I, you have I, an idea do. about that? I, I don't think that I'm as informed as you guys about it, but I, I, I mean, when it, when you look at why it is that people start doing crap like that, I think it's because they're threatened about. Well, anybody, like, what's to what? What makes us experts? And what makes us experts is that we have a particular. This and I think in modern analytic philosophy, a particular way in which we are trained to do this kind of conceptual analysis. And when you stray from that to just writing broadly about the world, like, well, that's not going to people aren't going to think that we are are special. Right. 
And once you're not special... But who else does that, writes broadly about the... Nobody. What you other know who does it? It's journalists and stuff like that, right? So, and, and I think that that's... It's a bad thing because, you know, I was just talking to a student in my, in my office and she's like, can you recommend any good books on psychology? And she was telling me the books that she had read. And I said, you know, the books you've read are good, but they're written by journalists about psychology. And I, I would recommend you read books by, you know, Dan Ariely, Bob Frank, whatever, people who are actually doing the research. You're going to get a very, very different view of science when, you know, when you read those books. So I think it should be coming from philosophers. And I think it should be coming. I don't think you should get dinged. But actually, I was going to say, like in the article um, that I read that you sent me, Tamler, Valerie's article on on mediated experiences, there is it's a good I, I think it's a blend of conceptual and big picture in a way that it's clear to me that you're being rigorous, but applying it more broadly. You're not playing that game of like, oh, yeah, right. still my heart. But, <laughs> you do I mean, strike a, a perfect balance. It's a good balance. balance. It's, a, it's an so interesting nice question and a broad one, but you're not being sloppy. That, I think that might be the one real fear is you're going to get sloppy. Yeah, that's my fear with some psychologists who write pop books. They're getting sloppy. Do you think maybe, Valerie, it's like... It's a fear of being labeled mm-hmm. continental. Uh, I don't think it's that anymore. I think I I I don't I think that anxiety has subsided. But I think yeah. Dave David Pizarro, whatever, is right about the, the sorry the fear the an anxiety about expertise and what your expertise is and why you right. you know why you deserve your job and your position what authority you have to speak right. about things. I, th- I think there's something in there right, like that's if, like, what I is it that's... that we have that other people don't have? But I don't um, see a lot of, uh, you know, know, I think in psychology, a lot of people have, have gone pop. Um, but I don't know how many philosophers could be accused of going pop, like where they've watered it down well, to sell to the masses. I mean, Tamler's going to try. But that's not a good thing. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's a symptom of the problem that we're talking about, which is you can't go pop if you're going to write about conceptual analysis of, you know, like whether a table is really a table. But why can't can't you do something like combine the techniques of, you know, rigorous conceptual analysis? You know, psychologists can do we're talking about studies and, and statistics and control groups and and methods but we're making an attempt like a good psychologist who goes for a trade book is the sort of person who's good at communicating the complexities of the science in a way that's interesting to the layperson. is there an equivalent of that for conceptual analysis for you guys well i mean you see like the the articles you see in the philosopher's stone on the time on the new york times that's yeah th- those are I think those are good examples of sort of analytic method being brought to um, address topics that the public actually cares about in an engaging way. Those topics are almost always ethical or political, right? I mean, like nobody, nobody who's doing philosophy of language, I haven't seen one anyway, that's philosophy of language in the stone. I don't know if you have Um, some moral psychology from the point yeah. of, from yeah, yeah. you know philosopher's sense of moral those kinds of topics get taken up there but but it's always something to do with p- 
practical questions about how to live, how to live together, how to organize society, as opposed to these very, very abstract questions, you know, about um, <laughs> adverbs or logic right. or, or whatever. But that's because those things are actually not worth working on. <laughs> See, I would not. I would not go that far. I, I think there. I think it's good to have people who work on things that don't have obvious practical upshot. It's just that I think we shouldn't reward that to the um, exclusion of of other things. That's right. That's right. I, I actually, again. you know, it's funny yeah. if you if you listen to the the countless hours of our podcast, it, it becomes clear that I love that sort of mental puzzle. Like, I, like Gettier cases to me just mm -hmm. tickle me. I love them. Um, and Tamler just has this, like, it's almost like he's vomiting, not even <laughs> metaphorically, when I even bring it up, right? It's like the, the, dog, you're, the squirrel, thing with your dog. Right? It's like the regurgitating that's what, dead that's squirrel the, carcass. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I just am so opposed to the just whole, the whole idea behind it, like, that there is going to be a theory you know, of necessary and sufficient conditions that can capture every instance where we kind of intuitively say, you know, it's that's knowledge. Like, why would we think that that's out there? Why would we want that? I don't. But I think that you're straw manning it sometimes because you could have a theory that says, yeah. you know what, there are no necessary and sufficient conditions. And here is why. And you use conceptual analysis to demonstrate that there is more like a family resemblance theory. But that's fine. But then we're done. That's it. It's uh, over. We already know that. So, like, why are we still talking? Because the family about resemblance theory could differ across people. So, why don't you take Val to task right now about trying to develop a theory of subjective well-being? Right now, pressure's on. Put put your put okay. your money where your mouth is. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about it, and then uh, by the end, I'll tell you the difference between. But let that. me just say about David's point about your straw manning. I. In a way, I think the analytic method is being strawmanned here because there, you know, there is a way of doing analytic philosophy where you are looking for necessary and sufficient conditions for a conceptual analysis for for a con application of a concept. And I am completely in agreement with Tamler that that is rarely a useful thing to do. Um, but the way I think about the kind of theorizing that I do is that. You know, I use some of the tools of analytic philosophy. I talk about counterexamples, and sometimes they're weird and hypothetical, but I think that can show, it can reveal something interesting. Um, but the purpose, I, I, I guess what I think is you need to make important distinctions. You need to be very clear and organized and methodical in the way that you think about yeah. things. But at the same time, you need to remember what the point is of what you're doing. So... I actually don't think there's a unifical well-being concept. Um, I don't think there's one theory of well-being that's going to work in every single context, um, which is why when I write, and I don't know if I did it in the piece that you read, but in general, I try to say, well, why, what is it that we're interested in here? What, are, what is the point of, do, of thinking about this and trying to get more precise about it? Um, and in the book I'm working on now, I say, well, let's put let's think about well-being in the context of trying to be helpful to our friends. I, I think that's right, Valerie, and which is why it would be totally inappropriate for somebody to critique your theory by coming up with an example of a neuroscientist <laughs> 
on Neptune who has, <laughs> you know, like, you know, a thousand children and, you know, like just one, yeah. you know, some of these like crazy counter examples that, you know, would just totally miss the point of yeah. of what you're trying to do. Whereas that's what okay, drives okay, a lot hold of on, other – Because I think it, that that – and I could be wrong here because I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not in the thick of this. But I think that I share your frustration, Tamler, about any theory that tries to to explain it all with a set of necessary and sufficient conditions. And in science, there's I just gave a lecture in my intro psych class on humor. And my conclusion was you'd be a fool to try to come up with a unified theory of what makes something funny or why we laugh. It really is probably going to be a mixture of a whole like three or four different theories that we all sort of like that are kind of related. But what Val's describing is being clear about concepts. And part of it is a good counterexample can distinguish between two different theories. And so what Val's saying is I can have this theory that says so-and-so and I want to be very, very rigorous about distinguishing it from this theory that says so-and-so. And now I can apply this theory. I think that sometimes people have this theory of subjective well-being and sometimes they have this one. Right. And that isn't that good analytical philosophy. That is good analytic philosophy, but I want to let, let's get to the actual theory so we can talk about this in more concrete terms, you know, because this is something that philosophers dropped the ball on for 2000 years. And then uh, as psychologists we, and economists, we came in, we came in and that. just like swept uh, it all up. So how does your theory differ from the, you know, some of the work in psychology and, and economics that also try I'm to really sorry, can I... Well, a number of... T- I think the way you put the question, Tamler, was, you know, or, or you described it as my theory of subjective well-being, which is um, not how I think of it, because to me, subjective well-being is a technical term that Ed Diener uses for a particular theory. So I just think of it as a theory of well-being. I think... I, I don't think I said... Subjective. Yeah, it might have been me. It might oh, have been you me, did actually. earlier, but oh, I mean, yeah. because um, that... Subjective well-being always brings up the association of Diener to me. There's some ways in which I I don't even think that what I'm doing is a theory of well-being. It might be more aptly described as a theory of the personal good, what's good for a person. And lots of people use well-being interchangeably with what's good for a person. So it's that whatever that is, um, you know, this goes back to the point about uh, not being interested in um, a sort of strict conceptual analysis, like when do we rightly apply this concept? I don't really care. But the basic view is that the good for a person is the achievement or fulfillment of appropriate values over time, over the course of a life. So there are a lot of kind of moving parts in that. Um, there's, first of all, what is a value? And right. I think that values are uh, not just things, they're not just desires or preferences. Um, they're not also not just what you think you value. Um, so I take a valuing, a valuing stance or attitude to be actually a kind of pattern of things where you have, um, certain kinds of emotional dispositions towards it that let's say you value, um, your relationship with your partner. Um, you'll be, 
disposed to want to spend time with him or her, to um, feel proud of yourself when you um, are able to make that person happy, to feel ashamed when you hurt their feelings. So there'll be a whole kind of um, conglomeration of emotional dispositions that you have with respect to what you value. But I also think there's a kind of cognitive aspect to values that they um, that we take them to give us reasons and to figure into our planning. So the val values are things we structure our plans for our life around. Um, so, and do I, we is there a separate level of endorsement of it of the value? Like we do also think that it's good for us to have this value. Yeah, and I do think these things come apart. So, so this is why people's values can be more or less. I use this kind of fudgy word of appropriate. Your values can be more or less appropriate um, in the sense that uh, you might say what's good for me is my relationship with this person. Um, but in fact, you're, you, you cringe every time you spend time with her or you're bored shitless when they're around. But is that, is that still a value? Setting aside the appropriateness question – is it, is it does it count as a value because we don't have access to our values explicitly sometimes right the way i think about it is that there's a kind of continuum of um a value that is more or less fully 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 developed in a way if you uh you know, as a cognitive matter, you you claim to value the podcast and you believe that it's valuable for you. That's part of what it is to value it, but you're not. It's not value. It's not your value in the most robust sense. Um, but things can come apart in the other direction too. You could have. Um, uh, you can sort of declaim something and think, well, this is not valuable for me, um, but your emotions are all in line with it. Um, you know, like maybe you, you, you think this podcast is such bullshit. I've got to get out of this stupid commitment with Pizarro. Um, but you, but you love doing it and you can't wait for the next time that you see his smiling She's face on the Skype now. screen. Um, so that would be similarly, uh, not quite a value. <laughs> right. Half of that. Well, sort of like on its way to being a value, if I can get those two things to line up. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea. And and I haven't been, you know, maybe this is maybe this is a little bit sloppy, but I haven't been that concerned of concerned with saying exactly at what point is it do I want to say it is a value? It's it's more that um their values of a certain kind are the ones values that have certain features are the ones that it's good for you to fulfill and live up to in your life. You know, I, I admit that sort of on my just lay theory a, va a value just seems to be a stable set of desires where I get that, you know, if I have weakness of will and like I, you know, I desire to cheat on my spouse um, one night that that I wouldn't call that a value. But my desire to be faithful um, that is stable over time is that right. Isn't that just desires that I have with where the difference here is frequency or yeah so if we're i mean if you're thinking of a kind of a dichotomy mm -hmm. of um mental states into beliefs or desires so you've either got mm -hmm. you know well philosophers make that distinction in terms of directions of fit often um values are more like desires and i i often i have said that i think values are a subset of desires 
that's okay with me, but they, but they're special in a, in a certain respect in that you think you have reason to, you, you think you've got reasons to do something about them so that when you think about how to live your life, they're the things that figure as opposed to right. every random desire you might. Well, okay. Let me back up a bit. I, so, cause you said, um, you know, how does the theory compare to other sorts of theories? It's really most like a desire satisfaction theory of welfare um, in the sense that uh, mm -hmm. these are kind of goals and it's the achievement of these goals that you have that constitutes the good for you. Um, it's just that I think desire satisfaction theories as they um, exist in the literature have one of two kinds of problems. I mean, either they take it just to be whatever desires a person happens to have, the fulfillment of those are good for you. And personally, I just have way too many desires for that to make any sense to me. I mean, I, I just want all sorts of things right. that I don't think are, are remotely connected to what's good for me. And then so on the other side, noticing that a lot of a lot of people have gone for some sort of idealized desire picture where it's not the desires, it's not just any old desires, it's the desires you have that would survive a certain kind of bathing in the facts or vivid dwelling on every relevant, yeah, if you're some kind of ideal version of yourself right. looking down on you. And I, those sorts of views, I think, have all sorts of problems. So I don't like the desire satisfaction theories that exist, but I like the form of them, you know? So this value fulfillment theory that I uh, try to defend, it's most similar in its structure to those theories. Um, but I just think it's important to, if what we're worried about is what's good for a person, we should pay attention to what persons right, themselves um, think is relevant to their own good. So that doesn't that make sense, Dave, that, you know, like you use your example about the spouse, like yeah. it might be that you have a lot of desires, like every time you go to a conference to to cheat on your spouse, but you think that the desire to be faithful is one that you have good reason to have, like that's a better desire for you. And so that's what pushes it over the edge to a, to value it makes sense i mean in some ways it's, it's an endorsement of the desires but but i'm wondering because you know part of and again this is uh, my na naive fairly naive take on the literature but my sense is that one of the things that always bugged me about the desire satisfaction was was that you just don't want to say that somebody who who really likes to harm themselves or hurt other people is you know, doing and and i don't know how the value account can it can if if you have someone who truly values selling crack to make money or or at every opportunity having licentious sex despite telling their spouse that they're faithful then and that is a value and they are they are satisfying that value this is the Kantian and Dave it always comes. Well, out. yeah, I mean, it's but is it, is, it doesn't this say, have the same problem as desire satisfaction theories? It's just all you're saying is is now I have just a, a a different kind of construct that could be satisfied or not, and yeah. So, um, wait, how is that content? I don't know. I, I don't, sometimes I don't even know what I'm being you're, accused uh, of. Rebelling against the subjectivist part of it. Well, exactly. But isn't that what's bad about the? Yeah, but I'll let Valerie answer. No, well, it's not bad. 
good. You're okay with All right, Val, let Valerie. But Chandler Kant wasn't a Kantian about happiness. So, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's that. Um, I think Kant was a desire satisfactionist about happiness. That's um, true. But then anyway. why didn't he masturbate? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I you wanted it. No idea. Can we go back to that other question that I might be able to answer? Yeah. Um, ultimately, there are going to be cases where my value fulfillment approach has the same problem as desire satisfaction approaches. And that's just going to be true for any theory that doesn't pose uh, some kind of objective external to the person standard. So if you're not, if you, if you don't want to accept standards like that, you're going to have to at some point tolerate that. Well, there could be somebody who all he wants to do is count blades of grass. That's Rawls's example. Um, and that that's, what's good for him. And I actually think in that case, you know, if you have a person who's that weird and really there is nothing else, they will never get bored doing it. There is nothing else they will ever care about that, that, uh, blade counting, process frustrates then that probably is what's good for them but they're just you know really really weird person or um, or a really wrong you know if like a rapist right they could be just a really really wrong right. person but here's an ex- really example of this that my students brought up that i thought was good when we were discussing your work did you see the movie nightcrawler yeah it's with I... jake gillenall it came out last <gasps> year i did well that so, was so creepy yeah super creepy yeah but that you did get the sense that that guy, the Jake Gyllenhaal character, was living a fulfilled life. Like this was what he wanted to do, what he thought was good to do, what he was good at. You know, it was probably you know it might be sustainable. I mean, we haven't gotten to that part of your theory. You know, that doesn't bother me to say that this is what's good for him, or that's a va- certainly that that's his values. But I could see how it would bother objectivists and rationalists like dave yeah so i i want to say one more thing about dave's question and then say something about the gill the uh nightcrawler um movie gyllenhaal um gyllenhaal really <laughs> i think so are you serious so. that's good that's good to <laughs> I know, know. <laughs> i, I say his name all the time um i'm not, so, sure. I'm not sure either so w- one way in which um i think the value fulfillment stuff helps with these kinds of problem cases. So, I mean, the first thing I said was ultimately it's going to have some of the same problems as any subjectivist type account. Um, but, but it does better, I think, than desire satisfaction theories on a number of cases because of the way that values are related to each other's in related to each other in systems and the way in which they develop over time. So the sustainability thing that Tamler mentioned quickly, I think is quite important um, because for most people, most humans value more than one thing. Almost all of us care about our relationships with other people. And those relationships are not just um, likely to be uh, values that are sustained over time, Um, so you're, you know, it's not like a a hobby that you have for a few years and you drop it, but they're also usually integrated into other things that we care about. So, you know, if you, you, you like music or, or art or, um, running or cycling, so many of the things that people like to do and are committed to as 
you know, projects for in their life involve other people in one way or another on a team or in a band or as a teacher or a student. Um, so, so the re- human relationships, I think, are, are so integrated into our system of values that it's pretty hard to be a jackass and succeed over time. Um, if you pay, so when you pay attention to the relationships and the sustainability stuff. So being a jackass, like if that would be an example of an inappropriate value because right. it's not sustainable or, or it's going to lead to inconsistencies with your other values. Is that right. the idea? Yeah. And I mean, this is a place where I'm less subjective than, than I used to be and maybe than other people are. But so the other thing I wanted to say about this is that these points about uh, values being related to each other in in kind of systematic patterns and your need to sustain them over your, the course of your life, it doesn't help with the true immoral. No, right. Values, and I wanted you know. to interject and say it, does, it doesn't help with with the Hitler. And and I think every philosophy conversation has to come around to Hitler. At some point. <laughs> yeah, so but I did I did I there. did want I I did want to say it, like I got some clarity from listening where I'm my objection really was one about whether or not we can say that somebody is object objectively it's a good value or a good desire or not and that's a very different question than i think what you're asking which is is desire satisfaction a good theory of what makes people happy and and that i'm fine with a theoretical account of what it is that makes people have a good life and be happy and whatever flourish even if that includes a very subjective notion of value, because I take your claim to be one of like, well, what is it that is going to lead to the to this well-being or happiness or goodness? And it could be that for any given individual, fucked up values like that, those are just their values and that will actually, in fact, make them happy. And that's a better theory than a desire satisfaction theory where you can have like, you know, masochists who have low level desires to be harmed and that you you say to yourself well it's unclear to me that given what i know about human nature and the desire for you know autonomy and and whatever like that it's it's unclear to me that that's a a a kind of desire that would ever lead anybody to have a happy life um whereas the value construct that you've that you're proposing here is a much more integrative one so i take that as a separate question then from what values one ought to have and yeah. And well, particularly if I mean, you could ask the what values ought one to have from two different perspectives, you could ask it right. from the point of view of what values would be best for you. And you can also ask morally yes. speaking, what right. values ought you to have. And and I've always separated those two. Right. Questions and you can be an so objectivist about one can, and a subjectivist about the other. And, right. Yeah, exactly. So it could be that the values you ought to have morally are also values that aren't going to be good for you exactly. if you're wired yeah. in a particular and, sort of way. Can we uh, back up a little? Because I, f- I feel like we rushed through a bunch of things with Valerie's account. So you have this notion of a value and then you have this notion of an inappropriate value and we sort of glossed over that. But can you give the... The conditions, not necessarily insufficient, but just the conditions <laughs> where that would make a, an honest value that you have not an inappropriate value. Um, so one is if it's uh, emotionally uns- unsuited to you. Um, so there's something you you're you're 
you know, on a path to pursue. It's it's a goal that you've stated for yourself, but you don't find yourself actually enjoying it. I mean, I, this is the kind of thing I see in students a lot who you probably have too, who students whose parents want them to go to med school. So they're taking all these pre-med courses and they're bored out of their skulls. And um, that, that, that kind of thing, they think they value pre-med and but if they're bored, then it doesn't seem like it's even a value. Yeah, and again, maybe not. I mean, I'm right. you know, I, I, where where you exactly want to draw the line? Um, but I mean, it, like, it's I, what so, they so would an say example of something that's a real on it, like no question, a value on oh, that side it, of the continuum. Meets, okay, but right. inappropriate. So what um, would that be? So there, I think the 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 falling the standard is going to be. Um, it's either going to have to do with. Um, compatibility with other values or compatibility with other values over time. You know, I actually think that there are people who value their relationships with abusive partners um, right. and who who are everything's in line. They they love the person. Um, they they care. Uh, they want the relationship to work. They take it to, in, into account in their planning for their life. They think it gives them reasons to stay faithful to the person. Um, but I think you know, if you look at what else they value, like their own psychological happiness, um, their uh, feeling respected, um, their long-term health, uh, providing a good example for for their children, the valuing of the abusive spouse doesn't fit well with those other values. And then, of course, if you look at, you know, patterns of abuse over time, um, it typically doesn't go well for abused spouses uh, who stay in those relationships over time. So is, does that example help? Yeah, totally. I think that's a good one. So, so, so it seems like to know whether your values are appropriate or not, you would need to know a good amount about yourself, but also a good amount, like, that's why I like this example, just about, like, well, how does the, these abusive abusive relationships end up working? You yeah. Know, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, do they get resolved? Um, is there, you know, this well, is an empirical question, right? Like, then you could do this with yeah. a lot of things, right? Well, I, I, think, I think there are a lot of empirical questions. And I also think, so this is one of the places where I, I think positive psychology is important. I think most people value their own and their own happiness meant by which I mean, uh, feeling psychological, you know, happy feelings, positive affect kind of happiness, right. ple pleasure. Um, and they value the psychological happiness of their loved ones. And you can learn a lot from positive psychology about what reliable causes there are of stuff like that um so that's good stuff to know if if those right. are your values I, but um, there is there is i think a, a real distinction to be made that i that gets clouded with this particular example because you are you're not proposing an objective theory of values because because that example i think would often be used for why why we should say that those people who desire to stay in the abusive relationships really aren't happy um at, because like mm -hmm. that's just a, a objectively bad thing to value but y you are leaving room for a person who if if being in the abusive relationship meshed well with all of their other values then it would be fine right if it happened i mean because your claim is combined with one of general human nature but there is the possibility that somebody could actually be 
masochistic and even desire abuse and eventual death be, right it could be that and so like if all of those values mesh together then you would have no problem saying well this it's very unlikely, unlikely given what we know be. empirically about about these you know whether or not people actually want that yeah so i wasn't expecting the kind of wacky counterfactuals uh, to come geez. from the psychologist <laughs> they always do it <laughs> happens always all do, the but time I, but I think in this case it serves no. well to distinguish what you're saying you're you're not saying it's objectively bad to value to, right. to value yep. abuse you're just saying like what i mean is the meshing network of all of the other values yeah although so this is tricky because putting it that way makes it sound like um you know, I, I could say that 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 um, being in a non-abusive relationship is objectively better than being in an abusive relationship. But in you know, I'm 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 not willing to go that far. I'm only going to say that it's a matter of meshing with your values. That that makes it sound like um, well, there's this other option. But I'm for some reason, you know, maybe I don't disapprove strongly enough of abusive relationships. I'm not willing to extend that far. I mean, from from my point of view, what what's going on is um, this. This is going to come out too strong, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, there aren't any objective values. So now what? Is that the end of the story? There's no objective values, so we can all um, do whatever the hell we want. And there's nothing, there's no sense to be made of what's better or worse for you. It's just anything goes. Well, no. Um, so that, that so so the way I think of my project is, you know, given that there are no objective values, uh, what are what can we do? <laughs> um, that does does that make sense? And there's a lot. And your point is, there's a ton that we can do. Yeah. To try to make even with that just strong statement, there are no objective values. There's still a lot we can do with a very sophisticated subjectivist account, which would allow people to be wrong, you know, to have inappropriate values, to think that a value is good for them and be wrong about that. Right. Like all of that you can fit within your uh, account while still just accepting that there aren't objective values. I do. Oh, I just want to make clear that I don't. Think yeah, well, I don't, and, and I don't. Yeah, I didn't take you to 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 mean that. I, <laughs> Valerie Tiberius, pro abusive relationship. You know, I'm also against genocide. Um, the, uh, yeah. No, no, no. I actually took take it as a, as as a strength of of your account that you can have an independent account of what makes people happy. And I think that it's perfectly reasonable. To, it, what you, what your account allows for is for me to say, um, me as somebody who wants to believe that there are objective right and wrong like morals, that um, you could have a person who is, who is happy and who is in in sync with all of their values and is doing something that I find abhorrent. And I don't think there's anything pro like problematic with that because you can say like that, you know, it really is true that there might be people whose whole network of desires and values are totally in sync and it's getting them to be happy by doing something that I find objectionable morally. But I can still step back and say, well, I don't like the people who are happy killing Jews because I love the Jews. 
Just, Hypothetically. Just, it's another of my crazy thought experiments. Thought, thought experiment where Dave actually likes Jews. As a as a pedantic aside, I don't I don't yeah. I wouldn't use the word happiness, but um just because I, I think happiness is kind of from talking to my students and other normal people, it, it's, it seems to have really come to be associated with yeah, a feeling rather be, than something right. big, yeah. bigger than so that. So what but would yeah, you use? What do you use? Flourishing? Well, I use, I use well-being. Partly, yeah. partly I use well-being to be part of a conversation because um, that's what everyone else talks about. And if you substitute it with some other word, then people think you're not writing about yeah. the same thing that they're interested in. Right. Um, but I would be, I, I, I don't, Connie Rosati talks about the personal good and I kind of like that. Um, and, and I don't yeah. mind the word flourishing. It's all right. But happiness I feel is too, too subjective and psychological because even for me. And a very present, yeah, yeah, very much I a mean, present moment rather than like a, talking about a life. You know, I can give a lecture on the psychology of happiness and I have to say pleasure, well-being, eudaimonia, you know, I have to, but, but like broadly we call it just the you know the study of happiness and it, and it's funny because it's you know a lot of the studies people are happier if they have more than one child you know one child zero children uh more than one child and they'll and the way they'll measure it is right they'll they'll like every three minutes they have to press a button that says how happy they are and then they just like tabulate those things up that's v so different than what you're talking about is that idea of you're just pressing buttons and then quantifying that over the course of six months or something like that. Yeah. Right? And they've, at least this is true about the effect of income on, on happiness that the, if you look at um, the effect of income on life satisfaction, um, there's just a, a steady uh, correlation. The more money you make, the, the higher your life satisfaction. But if you look at the effect of, income on certain positive affects like uh, thing, things like um lack of stress and not feeling depressed and right. that that kind of stuff um that's where it levels out at about 70,000 a year one day um, tamler one day even the subjective <laughs> measures come apart <laughs> i've just yeah, yeah, crossed it yeah Hey, just be become chair of your department. Be rich beyond your wildest dreams. You won't have. Can we go back to um, the the these kinds of cases of people with these sort of defective night, night yeah night crawler? Thank you. It was yeah. it's interesting the the um, the things that you guys are asking me about are just the sorts of things that I've been thinking. I mean, they're the things I've always thought a lot about. We sort of want to be able to say to the woman who's married to the abusive asshole, um, this isn't good for you. And you sort of would like that to be true, whether her values are form a coherent whole or not. Um, and, and so the work that I'm, the thing that I'm writing most recently, part of the reason that I focused on helping friends is that I was in, I, I'm interested in the question, when can it make sense for friends to discount the, uh, the, essentially to discount the self-reports of, of a friend in need or a friend right. in trouble. Like when can it make sense for us as the friend of this person to say, you like this guy, but he's terrible for you. Or you're, you, you want to take on like climbing Mount Everest, but, um, 
that that's going to be a disaster for your relationship with your kids or, you know, whatever it is. You want to um, apply to PhD programs in philosophy. Yeah, <laughs> that's, ex- <laughs> that's, a re- that's a really good example. Exactly. Yeah. And we, I'm sure we both find ourselves in that position a quite lot, frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so, so here what I've been thinking about is like, what are the conditions under which it makes sense for a friend to override or discount or perform an intervention on another friend because their values seem to be off track. And I think what you get there is, and this is why I think it's important to think about what the point is of having a theory. To get tenure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But I have tenure. You're you're just making one of those errors. I'm even through my post-tenure existential crisis. (laughs) I look forward to that. Are you in the midst of an existential crisis? A little bit. Like, sort of, but, I, but, I'll, inter- yeah. I'll intervene. Talk about that later. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, I think the answer, it, you, can, you can approach that question from the point of view of what it is to be a good friend. The question of, you know, when do I get to tell my friend she's fucking up her life? Um, as opposed to approaching it from the point of view of, what are the objective values and how are people falling yeah. short of these objective standards? And I guess I think that this, the way that I'm approaching it is better for a couple of reasons. One of which is that where the, where do the objective standards come from? And nobody, nobody listens to philosophers I positing do. objective standards of human good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm Except like, really? You know, the, I, I actually awesome. generate all of my actions using the categorical imperative. I, I have an app. I'm going to develop an app. (laughs) No, but so how would that work? So let's say um, I'm in this situation where a friend is doing something that I don't think is good for them. How do you approach that as a friend? Like Like how would that work in terms of helping me decide whether to intervene or whether not to intervene? Yeah, the main thing that I've been thinking about is the fact that People tend, I, I, people tend to assume they understand where the friend is coming from, and so there are all sorts. Of, there are a lot of obstacles to being in a position where it could ever be the right thing for you to <laughs> intervene or or override. Um, but I do, th- I do think there's some sort of obvious things to consider, like your your own epistemic position with respect to the person is one thing, and that's what I've been sort of focused on. But there's also, you know, questions about um, what the stakes are, um, what you know about the person, and the way in which they're capable. And I take it your relationships also influence, right? Like, what do they need from me right now? Right. Well, and I, yeah. what's good for them right now. But I think those two things are related because it's good for people to have stable relationships with other people who are able to help them. And if you do the thing that you think is right and you and it alienates your friend to the degree that they can't count on you anymore, so that I, is actually so I bad really for like them. this this account. And I and I think that that you seem to be expressing a, a bit of doubt as to your own account. And I'm gonna give you some what I think is good fodder for why you should push it even more. And I and I think it's that the failure isn't so much on the side of a friend to not understand, you know, the inner workings of the mind of the person who they're trying to intervene upon. I think that the insight comes from in psychology comes from 
the failure to of people to know their own values and to know to even be right we are mm-hmm. dense when it comes to self-knowledge and so when you put together a couple of claims one that you that you made earlier about how we often don't may not have introspective access to our own values but but we nonetheless leak that information right like we actually act and respond emotionally in ways and that's when yeah. a good friend yeah. who knows you yep. i think can have authority over predicting whether or not an action is going to make you happy and i and i and it's a very very different feeling that i've gotten from friends who tell me david you don't what you're doing is not good you're you're gonna regret it i know you it's a mistake versus somebody who says david what you're doing is morally wrong because we can have a debate about whether it's morally right or wrong or not but my friend who knows me and who you know there's all this great literature in psychology about how when like we observe other people's behavior we're pre- we're better at predicting you know you ask students hey you got a you got a b minus on your first exam what do you think you're going to get on your second exam everybody's like oh this time i'm going to do great you but if you ask a third party they'll say well if you got a b minus chances are you're going to get a b minus the second time around because we know other people in a way that we fail to understand ourselves and a good friend is somebody who knows you probably better than you know yourself in a lot of ways like we know ourselves in in terms of like obviously we have access to our own thoughts and stuff but they have access to the patterns of behavior and emotional reactions that we have all kinds of defenses blocking right we have all kinds of motivated processes that make us not see that our weaknesses, not see our tendencies, not even see our real values. But a friend can come in and say, dude, I know you. I know that you're not going to be happy. Like Tamler, I know you're not going to be happy taking on, you know, chair or, or whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, but do you I, think it's philosophy? I think, <laughs> I think it, yeah, no, it, it is. I'm just it's not yet psychology in that in that it's infor- it's i think it's <laughs> you can't fudge data about it yet you can't like p hack <laughs> but so i want to ask you about so I, that was quite interesting what you just said and it, it and those that that kind of research in psychology about our poor introspective access has certainly influenced me that was quite interesting what you just said and it, it and those that that kind of research in psychology about our poor introspective access has certainly influenced me. But lately, I've been more influenced by thinking about how dense we can be about other people. That's why I think what's so there's also is that. the distinction right. uh, between a relationship where you really know somebody and you have, I think there is information that we gather about people who we're close with. That's why yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't trust you know, somebody who doesn't know me that well to judge that. But there's obviously a sense in which, like, for instance, like, no one knows my my motives when I do something as well as I know them. But that's a different kind of knowledge than yeah. my overall patterns of behavior. Like, I, you know, if I, I, I could really be convinced that if only this girl would date me, like, I would be so happy. 
But my friend could say, dude, I know that you just, this is just a phase that you're going through. She's, that is exactly the kind of person who's going to make you miserable because, but I'm just blinded by it. That makes sense to me. I mean, it it seems like one thing that we're, so, well, let me tell you this example I've been thinking about, and I don't know which, I don't know if this is a type of knowledge, but I've thought a lot about my own complete (laughs) alienation from religious people. So, and I, and I've been reading, I was reading this blog by this gay Mormon, but he doesn't want to leave the Mormon church. And he writes really eloquently about why, about the importance of his faith and why he doesn't want to leave the church and why it's, you know, because to me as a, a, you know, born and bred atheist liberal, um, the thought that someone would choose their, some particular faith over their sexual orientation their identity well look uh, it's mind-boggling to me but it's like a risk reward he could have six husbands you know if he stays with the if he stays with the mormon church right oh like my that's, god, that's that, pretty maybe good that's it <laughs> yeah it's like yeah they're that probably be, not gonna go for this but awesome. if they do <laughs> but, so but i think uh, valerie you're 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 discounting eternal life you know, come on! How can you? Uh, you're you're complete. You're co- you have a complete inability yeah. to appreciate the promise of life, eternal life with Jesus. I do uh, complete inability, complete. Um, you know well, this idea of having multiple for a gay man having multiple husbands that that could be the deep explanation because that would really screw everything up because the way it works you're supposed to have the husband has a secret name for his wife and he gets to call the wives wife wives if whatever up to be to spend eternity with him if they've been good Um, oh is that yeah Yeah, that's i think that's part of it um but if you if you've got men marrying multiple men uh you're not gonna have enough men out there to be that's true Right. You'll have all these women in limbo. Right. This doesn't yeah. make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know. No, there's a whole community of them. There are websites dedicated to them. Anyway, but that's the kind of example I've been thinking about where I think like you really don't know what it's like to I guess I guess it's other people's emotional attachments to things that it's hard to to understand. Um Dan. It is hard um, for you to get into the mind of somebody who actually believes that God exists and God will save them eternally if they believe. I, I, this is not a pra- this is not a practical choice that this guy is making. This guy is saying, yeah. I believe in God, I believe in eternal life with God, and I believe in commune with God. I just think that my church is wrong about this particular aspect and I want to change it from within. You know, and the Mormons, like, you know, now they accept black people and they don't think that they're just cast out, you know, demon souls that made it into like, right, you know, and now and now they changed it. But it's not it's not a trivial motivator to think that you're you're never going to live eternally with the rest of your, you know, six husbands. (laughs) But I mean, there is also a good amount of evidence in psychology for egocentric bias, right? That we, um, if you, you know, you ask people to imagine, I I just read these studies about these hikers, you know, you ask people to imagine how hungry or thirsty these hikers who just came off a mountain or they've been lost in the desert for seven days or whatever it is. I can't quite remember the details, but, and the, the, the hungry, the thirstier you are, the more you'll be inclined to say that they're thirsty. And I mean, 
that's a that's a long ways away from not understanding uh, a spiritual person from the point of view of an atheist. But it does. I mean, I, it does seem true that you you try to put yourself in someone yeah. else's shoes, yeah, and yeah, what you're yeah. doing is putting yourself in someone in else's shoes else. rather than but you know isn't this like this is what makes a good friend is and you know i sometimes i catch myself if i'm talking to a friend about their problem just i i just catch myself talking for too long like i'm carrying on and i don't feel good about it and i'll try to stop and then when i feel like i'm being a good friend is when i'm just listening like i'm just listening to them listening to what they have to say and keeping my advice to a minimum because we do have a tendency to think we know what will be good for people we care about to and but part of being a good friend is is learning how to conquer that to uh i think that this is to an appropriate extent like one of the biggest challenges of interpersonal relationships because there is a sense, and Valerie, your, your point to this stuff, it's so hard to ever know what anybody's personal experience is, but what friends, and again, like the strength, I think, of the account that you're, that you're defending here is that there is, a, there is, to borrow the economist's term, there are revealed preferences, and there are, I think, revealed values, and what a good friend knows, one For of sure. my best friends this kid named Tony from California, Compton, we like, we probably have the, the most different backgrounds, you know, um, you might imagine, but this guy was one of the only people who just listened to me. Like he would, you know, I always felt like I was the listener for everybody, but like what Tamler says, like this guy would just, he was always there to listen. And every once in a while he would say, peas you this this isn't right for you and i would listen to him i believed him and he was right and some and he was the only person i could take that criticism from because i knew that he knew me because somebody else who offers that criticism boom i don't like whatever you know the interpersonal relationship gives objective information that i think your account is is saying is a valuable piece of understanding values and how they mesh together right yeah yeah sometimes i so um what you were saying uh maybe took me back to the first part of our conversation and i wonder what you think of this you both of you sometimes i think that um the thing that philosophers can add I mean, psychologists can go and investigate these biases that we have in the lab and can find out for sure, you know, how many people do things this way and how many people do things that way and to what degree. Um, But one thing that philosophers, I think, can do well is to try to translate some of the experimental data that you guys get into these much bigger real life sort of questions that are not in the lab anymore. Absolutely. Psychologists are great at collecting data. Right. And they're often, not always, but they're often horrible at interpret. Like they, they will be so sloppy conceptually. They're so rigorous methodologically and so rigorous statistically. And then so sloppy methodologically. I think this is one of Tamler's or, or, or like in our early podcast where he's like, he would get so mad at the conclusion section because it's not like he read the results. But like the conclusion section, there's be like some broad 
some broad sweeping a but, philosopher looking at that literature and making sense of it and saying like okay what is it exactly that they were asking what were they answering in something it's something that you do in this article that we'll post by the way on on the website where where you say okay like look what do we make of the data that says that the weather influences you know subjective well-being right like that it's a problem but like what do we make of it but so, so to sorry, just, I just want to. Um, I'm very interested in this these these methodological disciplinary questions. What do you think? It's a matter of to go back to the point about expertise. Is it that that uh, there is a another thing, um, conceptual clarity that psychologists some are good at and they could do they just don't happen to be very good at it. And philosophers have nothing else to do, so they can contribute that. Um, or, 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 or is that sort of conceptual clarity, the expertise that philosophers have that's worth saving our, our, our field? I, I think it's not, I don't think it's just conceptual clarity that we're doing though. It's even if psychologists were really good at conceptual clarity, I still think there's ways in which philosophers can explain like why this matters and why this should matter to you and why this is meaningful. I guess in the way that a friend, I was thinking like a, a really good friend will help you discover these things about yourself rather than tell you. They'll, they'll, they'll give you the sort of through their interactions with you will let will allow you to 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 discover a value you didn't know you had and as i like by analogy i think a good philosopher can do this for people in light of this research in light of what we know can help these people learn more about themselves and their life i like that that sounds good yeah that's our expertise we're yeah. like friends we're friends to the world <laughs> i mean this I think the answer for me is fairly simple, which is what was the what what were those moments that I had when I first was exposed to philosophy that made me actually think, oh, shit, I'd never I've never thought of it. And to me, it was like literally and I don't know. I'm actually not sure if Tamler will hate this, but Plato's dialogues where they're talking about what Probably. justice is. Oh, no. Like to me, I was like. Oh, that is so right. Like I had never really thought about like the, you know, and the counter examples and the, and to me, like yeah. it, it added deep value that I don't think that the psycho, you know, if you, you could poll people about what's fair and what's, but that's not the same thing. I think that it's, it's adding this layer of, I don't know, there's some value to knowing what I know and knowing that I didn't know something and I thought I knew it in a way that's not scientific knowledge, but yeah. but just a better understanding of those things that I thought all along I had thought about, but I hadn't really, because somebody who was sharper came along and pointed out, I feel the same thing about Nozick's discussion of identity. Like, I never just thought, I mean, it might again be ma mental masturbation for Tamler, but I think... That's right. I never thought about like whether it's continuity, you know. Not just mental. <laughs> it was just actual <laughs> masturbation. Or, you know, or, you know, Singer's thought experiments. Like that's stuff that philosophers do that nobody else does and nobody does it as well. And, I, you know, I don't think you have to piggyback on empiric. You know, you can talk about economics. You can talk about psychology, but you don't have to 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 have value. And you do it better yeah. than, sorry to say, like 
the other humanities professors. Like, I <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm sorry if these aren't things that you meant to talk about in this podcast, but I, that's um, cute that you think that we would have a structure for this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but well, I actually think like I've become obsessed with these questions since becoming chair because I'm suddenly in a position where I have to defend my field, right. you know, to to administrators who who want to know why should we let you hire anybody? What what good are you doing? And so I've never I've never spent so much time thinking about what is philosophy, what makes it distinctive, what's the value of it, um, and actually that's one of the things I've liked about being chair. It's just kind of interesting to think about what you're doing from that perspective although i mean i could do without the threat of, right Iron of, freezes. Uh, the threat of shrinkage yeah um, yeah but uh, anyway. so uh, do you is is it something that you think we need a better coherent answer to if we're going to survive as a discipline or, or at least not survive, but do well as a discipline, not become like these fringe departments, like, you know. Yeah, 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 I've, I've I, I kind of, I, I don't know, I, I'm not a very good strategic thinker, but I am inclined to think we'd be better off if we had good um, snappy answers to these questions about ourselves so it's sort of like a theory of well-being but just applied to the yeah discipline. yeah exactly so, yeah. you know actually in fact you know that um so i'm the president-elect of the central division of the apa and so i have to give a presidential address in 2017 and i'm going and i'm actually going to talk about it's so funny that you just said that tanler because my plan is to talk about values and value fulfillment um, for an institution. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of working on a survey of philosophers and what they care about in the field. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. In fact, uh, would you like, would you, well, never mind. Yeah, I'll ask yeah, you about you that can, later. <laughs> I want to ask a, the, this broad question about this. Do you think that, um, you know, like the minute I learned about philosophy as a discipline, Soon thereafter, I learned that there's analytic philosophy and there's continental philosophy. And I feel as if there is that that has just carved away a large part of what I think, Valerie, you're, you know, the stuff where you're saying is this philosophy. Like there is so much that may not fit. Isn't there room for another category of stuff? that you could say is good philosophy, it's rigorous philosophy, but it doesn't come with the baggage of being continental or analytic where you would say like, hey, this is just a sharp thinker about... Yeah, I mean, so I don't really even know what analytic well, philosophy means. I certainly means. don't. Because <laughs> some people think that analytic philosophy is positivism yeah. or, you know, right. um, and then some people think analytic philosophy is just the core which would be metaphysics, epistemology, mm -hmm. philosophy of language, and hardly ethics. anything else. Yeah, but, but meta-ethics. Kind of. Like yeah, meta you know, it's a certain right. kind of meta-ethics, I guess. Um, don't but don't if you ever just apply, think of, if you apply the ethics, you're out. If you apply it, you know, <laughs> no, no way. Um, but if you think of analytic philosophy as just um, the kind of philosophy that we do in America, in the U.S., in North America and England, then I, then, and you know, 
what, well, what would you say about Bernard Williams? Is he? I would say he's in the analytic tradition, but his way of doing philosophy is not at all um, like. Or the, Alistair McIntyre. Yeah, or, yeah. So or I, like uh, Mark, you know, you go back, Marcus Aurelius, or yeah, uh, he was definitely continental. So. Or Nietzsche, you know, like Nietzsche, I guess is normally thought of as. Right. I, I guess what I'm asking is like, is, is there chairman. room for just like a new category? Just- I think so. I think it would be good to have to get rid of that um, that di- that dichotomy and and. So what you're saying, Tandler, is there's no necessary and sufficient conditions for being called an analytic philosopher. <laughs> just being a philosopher. <laughs> you're just a philosopher. <laughs> you know, and, and I think in 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 a way the analytic part of it is at fault because i think people were very uh, turned off by the idea of continental philosophy and there was a move right to distinguish ourselves from these whack jobs like heidegger and like Husserl, and and nobody could understand but then it's like we went too far the other way in terms of restricting ourselves to this kind of method that i think as dave said to bring it all full circle is modeled on the sciences Yeah. Well, Valerie, I did want to ask you about like conflicting values and like, well, well, let me ask this, because this is something I think like this is what I would like philosophy to do. And what I asked my students to do when we read your read your piece is to just imagine that they or somebody else, if they didn't want to get too personal, were in a situation where they had to make a a, a fraught decision, like like an important decision. How could they use your account to help them make that decision? Because I do think there's practical value to your account just for the individual who reads who reads it. How could they – and I got some really interesting uh, – this was like one of my best assignments I did. The students who did it well did it really well. Oh, I'd love to know what they said. Um, I'll send you one of them. It was just so f- freaking phenomenal oh that, that would be great crazy yeah. like it was like one of the best written things i've ever got if not- you should publish it you should publish uh, it under your name <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a good idea but anyway do you think that your account has that kind of value and if so it's like of course you're this is a contribution i so what one of the things that i say in my book in the reflective life is that I'm not sure how much of what I say is useful in the moment. So like right now I've got to make this really important decision. What, you know, what are the, what are the rules? Because I tend to think of good, big decision-making in terms of what you've done over the long haul to put yourself in a position where you can make good choices. So I think that occasionally engaging in some reflection about what you care most about and how well the things that you care about suit you and whether they're likely to sustain you over a lifetime, that's a useful thing to do, not constantly, but sometimes. And I think that if you are a person who's in a habit of sometimes sort of checking in and thinking about that, um, you'll tend to make better decisions when they come around. But that's not the kind of advice you can take like right now. Um, I think you should develop an algorithm that takes into account <laughs> all of your behaviors, all of your stated preferences, 
your peer like peer review you know like peer judgment totally and yeah. it will mm-hmm. output a decision in any given case yep and the peers should the peer peer judgments should have credibility totally uh, you could have a score, exactly you could weight multipliers them. um mm-hmm. and you yep. could you could yep. score them in terms of how accurate they've been in judging others uh, yeah. this is this That's is intellectual really property hey take it uh, i'm giving it to you you know just give me an acknowledgement you're rich you're rich you don't need to be chair anymore you know because Lori paul's app would just be like you don't you can't know every time you press the button you can't know it would just be like a a magic eight ball with one answer like there's no way you can know you can't know (laughs) yeah i could have an app that you know it would be like one of those what do you call it experience samplers that would that would poke you every once in a while they say think about what you value um we gotta wrap up i think because i'm about to get oh i hear them the leaf blowers the leaf blowers they've been going on next the most it's the most sisyphian task ever i mean do they like compete with each other and blow leaves like from one like lawn to the other they do in fact my neighbor was just complaining about it and it's also just like i would so be so happy to ban it's like and and just like rake like if we could all agree to do that but you know because there's always somebody not always but like in our neighborhood you know the almost everybody has every a podcast and, i listen and, and to always every somebody blowing. I listen to there's some guest that has a leaf blower and it, it's like a free rider problem though it's like if you don't do it then you're still gonna get all the other people doing it so it won't make plus what's wrong with leaves it, I, th- I think they're bad for the lawn that's but a dumb, that's a dumb question no. <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> do you do you have a lawn? Well, not now, no. but I mean, I like see you know, when you live, but you live in Minnesota, your lawn it, will die. Like what's wrong? No, but it won't grow back if you leave the mm-hmm. leaves on it. Yeah. The leaves create a blanket of yeah, okay. death. Justify, you yeah. know, it's like you're in, you're in the pocket of big oil. You're just, you know, like. <laughs> yes. I, I, that's right. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for joining us, Valerie. Oh, thank you for having me. This was very fun. It was really fun, actually. It It was great. Well, we'll have you back, hopefully. And for your 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 address as the president-elect, I think that you should feel free to just play the episode. You know, just like... (laughs) (laughs) And then go to the bar and get a drink. (laughs) I've said it all here. That's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> it's all here, people enjoy. Uh, yes, my platform is I think that people should, philosophers need to be more, we need to reward more entrepreneurial efforts like podcasters. And therefore, yes. I am going to play you a podcast <laughs> rather I, than give yeah. you a lecture. I do think I that actually do, I actually think that, that the experience of doing all these podcasts like has taught me what, like th- that that there is a lot of value to sharing this stuff with you know uh, how long how long are your podcasts Do, like you edit it down to anywhere an hour? anywhere between an hour an hour and 50 two yeah, hours two hour two hours unless it's a sam harris episode all joking aside, we get so many emails where people are so grateful because, like, this is the kind of stuff they've been thinking about, but they don't have anybody yeah. to talk to about it, and they don't have any, like, real access. That's Stop so it, neat. Yeah. That's really cool. 
Yeah, and you know, from all around the world, and like just like the nicest yeah. things people have said to us, and that's it's great. It's it's you know, it's definitely a time a suck of yeah unimaginable proportions, but it's like it, worth it it's, for that. It's, I think yeah, it's like that's really it's cool. a very efficient way to commute. You know, when you think about when I think about how you know how many people see my talk or read my paper compared to how many people would listen to this. Well, and you're both very pleasant to talk well, especially to, especially when we have say. guests. We fight sometimes. When, uh, yeah, well, I'm when sorry I didn't us. get to see that. That would have been amusing.